Well, the first thing I would do is if I went back in time and met myself would be to kiss myself on the mouth and change nothing. (laughs) (laughs) You are listening to Louder Than Words, the podcast inspiring creatives of all types by giving you a glimpse into the lives and creative process of the most remarkable people you know. I'm John Benini, and I'm your host. And hello there, friends, and welcome to Louder Than Words, where we provide a glimpse into the lives of the most innovative entrepreneurs, writers, designers, doesn't matter what you do, just creators in general. We give you a glimpse into their lives and and their processes. I'm John Benini. And today, uh, I'm really pumped because we're hanging out with Ali Gardner. Uh, he's probably one of the most fun guys in marketing. He's the co-founder and chief landing page snob at Unbounce. I may have made up that last title, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean snob in a very endearing way because this is a guy who's seen more landing pages than anyone. So naturally, he's super critical, but he can constructively pick apart any page in about two seconds. Uh, so, so it's definitely uh, an endearing quality. He's spent over 17 years in the fields of interactive web design and development and has also spent time as a creative director and a director of marketing. So he could really talk and and on all sides of marketing uh, and he comes at it from a very diverse standpoint. He speaks all over the globe on conversion rate optimization and today we're going to be chatting with him from about everything really from marketing to marketers, his internal persuasion instincts, puking and running from bison in Yellowstone National Park. So how's that for some versatility there? Uh, Ali, welcome, my friend. Uh, how are things? Yeah, things are great. That's a great intro. I am excited about this, John. This will be fun. Yeah, if you need a, if you need a hype man for, for the road trip this summer, I'll be at the <laughs> Boston show, so maybe I, can, uh, maybe I can intro you, you know? Love it, love it. <laughs> <laughs> so are you, uh, are you heads down right now in preparation for the, uh, the Unbounced Conversion Road Trip coming up? Yeah, it's it's gonna be really fun. It's pretty intense. I mean, it's it's eight days, four venues. You know, uh, Chicago, New York, Toronto, and Boston. So yeah, uh, lots of prep going on. So I probably should have prefaced that with, uh, you know, maybe give everybody the quick elevator pitch. What is Conversion Road Trip, and can can they still buy tickets? Yes, you can. Well, our first conference last year, Call to Action Conference, was such a success. Uh, it's a one day single track event. It's two two days this year, but we wanted to bring that to more people. So we're, we don't have a, a bus this year. I was hoping we'd have a bus for the road trip, <laughs> but we're, we're going to be flying on the road trip. So we're going to these four cities doing half day or one day conferences, really great venues, awesome speakers, just, uh, yeah. And, and great after parties. It's, and it's really cheap. It's like 300 bucks. Yeah, yeah, and and I'll be speaking there. Oh, well, at the Boston one too. So you guys mm-hmm. should definitely come out. Yeah, next year you can get the the Volkswagen bus, and that'd be super cool. Get <laughs> like the unbounced branding on the side. Um, anyways, Ali, I'm super pumped to have you here t- today, man. So so let's have some fun. And I yep. want to I want to lead off speaking of fun. Uh, you recently, you know, we'll get into unbounced and the marketing and the landing pages, but. Uh, you are, are are passionate about photography, and you did a, a project this summer where you took, I believe it was a month, right? 
mm-hmm. where you you sort of went out to you know the American West, the, the desert, and, and took photos from everywhere from the Grand Canyon, and I think you had Bryce in there, and maybe even Zion National yeah. Park, and you titled it Thirty Days in the De- Desert." And this project is absolutely stunning. So for anybody who wants to check it out, uh, it's just on Ali's site, AliGardner.com. Um, so. I'll ask you about your on and off relationship with photography second, but first, you have a couple of great stories. So you and I were just chatting about this before we went live here. Um, that first photo you took, because it had been a while, you were on the north side, the north rim of the Grand Canyon, which yeah. um, depending on where you are, it could be Arizona or Utah. But uh, So you were on the north, the north rim, which is a hell of a lot more green than uh, the south rim. So tell everybody that story about that, that trek you took, that 62-mile trek to get that beautiful shot that you'll see when you go visit Ali's site. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's in the winter. So the, the main North Rim of the Grand Canyon is closed because there's too much snow there because of the higher ele- elevation. But there's a very, not very well-known area to the west on the North Rim called Tarraweep. And like maybe 1% of people who go to Grand Canyon ever go there. Uh, it's down, like you said, it's down a 62-mile dirt road. Uh, it's very rustic. And then the, the, the last six miles is the bad part. It's an absolute train wreck of a road. The, the, the holes and the hill, everything you have to go across. It's like serious four by four country. There's no cell reception. It's described as self-rescue. So if you get stuck, you have to get yourself out. Um, to get someone to come in and tow you, it costs about two grand. And they say like 25% of people who go down this road get at least one puncture. So (laughs) it's pretty terrifying. I was on a solo trip. I'm on my own. And I mean, I had some gear with me, like a tire inflation kit and a shovel. Uh, And it's a rental. So usually when you have a rental, you're like, ah, if I trash this, that's okay. (laughs) But you don't want to trash it in a place like this. Where they say self-rescue. Yeah, that, that would have driven me away. Yeah, it, it was pretty intimidating. And I bottomed out on massive rocks a couple of times. And that's scary. Like, it's so loud. And, and then, you know, the, you're kind of, the SUV's wobbling. And you, have, you don't, do I go forward? Do I go back? Which way do I turn? It's, it's pretty scary. So you make it out. You make it out. You take these beautiful shots, um, you know, breathtaking shots that, like you said, less than 1% of people ever make it down there, and less than that are probably equipped with the camera gear that you had to take the kind of shots you had. So the next day, you make the 62-mile trek back out um, and drive five and a half hours to your next stop, and and <laughs> I'll, I'll just shut up and let you tell this part of the story. <laughs> yeah, well, because I was getting up at the crack of dawn to take a sunrise shot, which was terrifying itself because this is the most... Uh, sheer place in the Grand Canyon. It's 3,000 feet directly down into the canyon. And I was standing on the, like one foot from the edge of this in the wind trying to get a shot. And I'm, a, I'm scared of heights. Um, but so I, to make sure I was there on time, I just left my tent, set up in the campground, and I went down. I took the photo. I'm on a high. I got a great shot. And as I always do, when I leave the campground, I'm driving by and I wave at it. I'm like, you know, like, hey, campground, see you next time. Um, or see you never again because of this road. But and, and so off I go and I drive through this horrible road, bottoming out again. And I, I get out and I'm just like, oh, it's so nice to be out of this. And then I drive for about three and a half hours up to Zion National Park. And I'm about to scout out my next sunset shot. And I open the back 
of the SUV and I'm looking for my blanket to cover all my gear so that nobody can see it through the window. And there's no blanket and there's no tent and there's no sleeping bag. <laughs> I'd left it all in the campground down the end of this nightmare road. I, I almost cried. I came so close. I kicked the, the truck. I was just fuming. And so I had to drive all the way back another three and a half hours, then two hours, about an hour and a half down this dirt road, bottomed out again because it's getting dark on this, this thing, packed up, drive back out. I spent my entire day in hell. It was just <laughs> awful. In case anyone is curious about what the inner circle of hell looks like, Ali Gardner may have been there. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and that, that brings me to that next question is, you, um, you know, you sort of alluded that that was the first picture you had taken in a while. So talk about maybe your, you know, your, your passion of, with photography and, you know, that on and off relationship and, you know, what kept you from it for so long? Yeah, well, I used to be a pro photographer in, in terms of I sold my work. Um, and I was getting, you know, really close to start starting to do exhibitions. I haven't done one yet. I'm going to do it this year. Uh, but then we started the company and we're all broke. I had, I had no money because I, I get my inspiration when I go on trips. I don't tend to take any do any photography where I live. It's always when I go on a road trip like that. And I couldn't afford to do that. So I basically hung up my camera for five years. Wow. Yeah. And, um, you, you know, you alluded that when you started, the, I mean, anytime anybody starts a company, you're not going to have, you know, m much disposable income to speak of to go on photography trips. So, you know, let's talk about Unbounce. And how did, how did that all start? Because you had, you know, you had worked, you know, in, 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 in a variety of roles prior to, to, to starting Unbounce, co-founding Unbounce mm -hmm. um, as creative director, you know, worked in web design and all those sorts of things. So, you know, what sort of necessitated Unbounce at the time, which was, I believe, 2009, correct? Yes, it was. Yeah. So, you know, why landing pages and, uh, you know, how did that all come about? Like, how did you, you meet your co-founder and all those sorts of things? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I almost didn't get there several times because... <laughs> During my photography trips, I almost got hit by a bison three times, but that's, an, that's, an, that's another story. Um, so we have six co-founders, which is really rare, but it's effective because between all of us, we didn't need to hire anyone for almost two years because we could do everything. Um, but rewinding, four of us worked together at a Vancouver startup in 2000. Uh, then dot-com crash hits, and we all got laid off on 9-11. Wow. Not kidding. Wow. <laughs> on 9-11 wasn't the best day um, after that I delivered pizzas for six months while building a design portfolio and like for that because a lot of people just went on unemployment benefit and ah, I'm not going to do that so I held five ecotourism companies and I said your website sucks I'll, I'll design and build you a new one if you give me free trips and I can use it as a case study so that's how I kind of got into you know, con contracting and things like that. Um, 2004, I joined an online gambling company called Bodog, which was based in Vancouver. And that's where I met the rest of the founders. So, yeah, between those two, actually, the whole time over the last 15 years, we've worked on and off on different projects together. And then 2008, just before we started it, Rick and I, he's the CEO, we were working in Costa Rica for a really sketchy online casino. Uh, <laughs> yeah, then we got back. He had two ideas. One of them was terrible. I'm glad we didn't pick that one. Uh, there were probably about 10 of us. We debated which one was the best, and people came and went, and then eventually there were six of us left. 
we just quit our jobs. I didn't have one at the time, but and contracts people were doing. And we were sitting on the rooftop of our apartment building, summer of 2009. And we all just said, screw it. We banged our beer cans together and started the company. So what was, what was the, like who's, so who had the winning idea and, and why did you guys buy into it at the time? Right, it was Rick, yeah. I mean, we'd seen um, in the companies we worked for before, in the marketing departments, they couldn't, they wanted to build landing pages for their campaigns and they couldn't do it. They're dealing with IT. It takes two weeks to get something built. They need a change because of the typo that takes two days to get that done. It's just ineffective and it, it was a massive pain. So we did some validation, like Facebook ads, to see if people were actually if more people had this pain and across the board, everybody did. So, you know, we think, yeah, okay, we believe in this. So let, let's do it. So six friends clinking glasses over a few <laughs> years saying, we're going to make this happen. But what did, I mean, it's easy to sit here now, right? And look back and be like, man, this was a great decision. But, yeah. you know, from delivering pizzas and, and uh, you know, guys that had been through a variety of, you know, career change, getting laid off and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Were you confident? Like, you know, honestly, were you confident when you were when you were ha- when you were sharing beers that like, you know, this is going to work. This is going to be the job that I have if not <laughs> if not forever for a very very long time. Yeah. It is sometimes it's hard to remember what it felt like. Um I think above all we were just super excited. I I wasn't I'm not risk averse in any way. I I don't get scared by risk, you know. I I had to, not bankruptcy, but I had to do something called a consumer proposal. So this is kind of like halfway bankruptcy. I had to do that before we started the company because I just couldn't, I couldn't survive. I got super sick in Costa Rica and I couldn't work for six months. And so financially I was screwed. So, you know, it was, it really was all or nothing. Um, but, you know, some of the founders took equity at the start and some took a little bit of a salary to kind of make that work. So basically, Ali Gardner was every investor's dream at the time then, right? <laughs> <laughs> but hey, it, it, it can work. It can work, right? It's, it's not about uh, – and, and, and the part I love about you delivering pizzas too is uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of guys that may even be listening right now that may be doing things to make ends meet because mm-hmm. they want to start something. They don't feel fulfilled unless like, they're starting something on their own. And you, know, you, you made that happen. Um, so that's, you know, that, that's the whole point of, of a podcast like this is to let people know about that. Right. Um, and you know, so when you guys like, going back to that scene where you guys are like, this is the direction we're going to take this, uh, it wasn't called unbounced. Obviously you guys just had this idea about landing pages and then, you know, almost the more laborious process comes after that is, you know, what the hell are we going to call ourselves? And, you know, you have an obsession with coining terms, right? And yeah. because legend has it that the name for unbounced came came to you while on a late night stroll through Vancouver. Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I became a marketer the day we started the company. I'd never done it before. I mean, I was a very opinionated, I'd done usability, interaction design, and, and a million different jobs, um, including, well, delivering pizza. I'm allergic to cheese. That was really annoying. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I'm obsessed with branding and naming things. I, I guess it was probably partly fueled by this, but because I was the marketer, I felt that I had to be the one that came up with it. And so I just obsessed and obsessed. And partly because Rick, 
had a tentative name, a domain he'd bought, which was easy, like easy, EZ, easylanding.com. I was like, there's no way that we're going to do that. I'm not standing for that. <laughs> so I'm out walking late at night um, on the, the, the seawall in Vancouver. And I'm just running through all these marketing terms in my head and anything to do with landing pages. I'm like, what can we call it? What can we call it? And then, you know, I'm thinking of bounce rate. Okay, well, bounce rate's bad. How do we make it good? I'm like, oh, unbounce. And then uh, me and Justin, one of the other co-founders, we spent an entire evening getting drunk, putting the word un in front of every imaginable word just to see how, how funny it would be and uh, <laughs> really kind of convinced ourselves that this was you know, how it should be. It took about a week before everybody else came around. But. And, and nothing worked quite as well as Unbounce. I mean, I think, I think a great name doesn't need to be explained. And if, I, if you had asked me before you just explained that, what Unbounce meant, I would have said the same exact thing. So um, looks like that late night stroll probably paid off. <laughs> yeah, and, and I like it because it's not, necessarily obvious and it sounds a li- it's it looks and sounds a little strange which i think is nice as a brand that it's not something completely literal um and in since that day i <laughs> it's my personal mission that whenever we do something new i come up with the name for it <laughs> and i'm on a 100 percent batting streak right now yeah, you got the track record yeah. <laughs> yeah so it was on bounce and then our google plus community was conversion heroes then we have page fights uh, call to action conference, international CRO day, conversion center design, attention driven design, all these things we do, I make sure I come up with the name. <laughs> <laughs> so who, you know, who is Unbounced? Now, you know, that was 2009. You guys have grown into, you know, an industry standard in, when it comes to landing pages and, and CRO um, and education. You have a podcast as well. So, you know, who is Unbounced maybe for some of the listeners who aren't as familiar with what it is that you guys do? Yeah, um, well, we're a self-service SaaS business where marketers can build, publish, and A-B test landing pages without IT. That's the simple elevator pitch. Uh, but really, we're about empowering marketers to create better marketing experiences by removing technical people so they can do, they can do their own work under their own you know, terms. So it's really about empowering marketers. Um, in terms of the makeup of the company now, we've just hit uh, 100 people. Which is, it blows my mind, you know, when you're wow. th- thinking about the six of you starting and then, uh, you know, where we are now. It's, it's pretty crazy. What were those early days like when it was a six of you? Like, did you have office space and, and, and uh, you know, what did, it, what did the company look like back then? Yeah, oh, it was so tough. Like, you never know how hard it's going to be until you do. I mean, the first three and a half, four years were just so painfully difficult. Um, at the beginning, so we didn't have an office to start with. So, We'd work from home, and then every Friday we'd go to one of the other founders' uh, places for breakfast, and we just have a lot of bacon, <laughs> <laughs> and we just rotate around that. And then, luckily, one of our early um, early angel investors they had an office that they only used one day a week, so they gave it to us for free for I don't know about a year, and then they charged us virtually nothing after that. So that was a that was a big help when we were getting started. So like you said, those first three, three and a half years, you know, you can never really prepare yourself for how hard they are. So mm-hmm. if 2015 Ollie Gardner could sit and have a beer with the same Ollie Gardner who co-founded it in 2009, what sort of lessons could you impart to him in regards to, you know, scaling the company to what it's become? 
Well, the first thing I would do is if I went back in time and met myself would be to kiss myself on the mouth and change nothing. (laughs) 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 Um, Then I would tell myself to invest heavily in IPA because it's going to be a big deal in the beer world. (laughs) Uh, In terms of scaling something, like what would I tell myself then to make sure we, we did this right? Uh, like I said, we're at 100 people now, and this is the first time where scaling's actually seemed like an important thing. You know, we've learned like Moz uh, have been like a big brother to us um, in many ways over the years because they're in Seattle, we're in Vancouver, and we're good friends around. So you know, we, we we exchange a lot of data and advice back and forth. And you know, he told us about when when they grew from like 50 to 125 people, all of a sudden they were getting less work done. So it was a big kind of you know flag for us to make sure we we paid close attention to that. And now that we're in that spot, we're taking the right measures to make it work. We just hired an awesome new COO we grabbed from Disney. Um, we have a great management layer. Most of them are first-time managers, though, so we need to make sure we support them as we grow. But more specifically, I would invest heavily in three specific talent pools that we were a bit slow on to start with. Get more designers, more writers, and more developers specifically working on technical integrations and an API. You know, I used to, when I was, I'm a shit manager. That's, <laughs> that's something else to note. Um, so I didn't do that anymore. Now I've stepped back and I'm just co-founder. And, but uh, when I was running the creative team, I was, always wanted to hire more designers, but I couldn't really justify it because I thought, well, what, what are they going to do? But I know now that you hi- every time you hire a designer, you double the number of design requests. It's just inevitable because everybody sees what can happen and they want a piece. So I'd do that. I'd have more writers so we could, you know, content was just me for years. Um, and, you know, when you've written 300 blog posts about landing pages, <laughs> so, the run, sometimes you need a bit of help. The well runs dry, yeah. And yeah. You, you sort of suggested that earlier, that the, the early days when it was just the six of you, uh, it worked because, you know, you guys, you know, it was just six of you. You guys can do pretty much everything when you have six mm-hmm. co-founders. So as you scaled, though, was it hard to let go of things? Because in a lot of cases, you know, founders of company, even when there's one, they have a hard time seeing, you know, somebody take over marketing, somebody take over, you know, hiring. So was it tough for you guys to sort of let go of certain things uh, in order to scale the company to where it needed to be? Yeah, I think all of us went through that. All of the founders, or, or at least four of us. Um, what was toughest for you? Two things, really. Like you say, giving up marketing. So I was the director of marketing when we started. And then I hired a director of marketing to replace me. And I was going to move back to creative director, which I'd done in the past. And that was really hard because I'd done everything. You know, like marketing was me. And I, I don't know. It was hard putting that A in someone else's control. Would they mess it up? Or were, is that the end of your reign? Or are you being important as far as that's concerned? I, I, I don't know. Um, but I'm a big believer in hiring up, you know, hiring someone better than you. You know, I'm not afraid of it from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so we hired Georgiana Lodi, who's our director of marketing now, and she's, she's just incredible. I was, that was a really amazing move. Um, you know, I'm not being self-congratulatory, but <laughs> it was a really, really great hire. But I think one of the weirder things, because 
we're all peers, the six founders, because we've known each other for so long. And because we started the company on equal footing, like equal split for everybody, it was hard. For the first year, we're just all equal. But then as we grow, the CEO role becomes more and more important. And I would say two and a half years in, it was then critical that he was our boss. Mm-hmm. But it was really weird to come to terms with that. I remember being at MozCon and uh, we were, me and Rick were walking out of the hall and somebody said, oh, hey, it's great that your boss lets you come down. And I was like, he's not my boss. <laughs> and Rick heard me and we had a big argument about it. And it took me a while, but now, now I get it. It's the way it has to be and it makes sense and he's great at it and I really love it. So that, that was r- really strange. Especially when you guys were friends prior to that, yeah. right? that makes it a lot harder. Yeah. Um, so and and now on Bounce, you guys have two offices in in Canada. Um, you know, you guys have scaled, like you said, to a hundred people. You have a conference. You have a road trip coming this summer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what? How have you guys been able to have this much success in a space that has a lot of all-in-one software too? That okay, so you guys do landing pages, but there's a these other softwares that do landing pages and email and social and you know but you guys still have carved out a niche that you're very successful at and you've scaled successfully and you have a talented group of people working for you why have you guys been so successful i think uh, it's interesting because the metaphor fits the purpose of a landing page a landing page is designed to be laser focused on one very specific thing your campaign goal and there's only one thing to do if it's a good page We've been laser focused on doing one thing exceptionally well, just making a landing page tool that just nails that. And because there's always somebody saying, oh, we should branch out and do this or do that. Like, or say someone gets a little bit bored with their role. They're like, why don't we expand the product line or, you know, and it's really hard to resist, but we did, you know, there's nothing to say we won't add to it in the future, but to this point we needed to be just so focused on you know that doing that one thing better than anyone else and it's been six years now since you guys have found it unbound so when you look around the landscape now uh, of tech and marketing and software what surprises you yeah, that's interesting i don't think anything surprises me per se um but what is interesting and what i'm seeing is the SaaS business model is starting to mature you know, it's been around for long enough now. I'm saying six years. It was it was around for a few years before that. Um, it's starting to mature, which is leveling the playing field. People understand the business model. They understand the pricing. They understand how you do feature differentiation. So the playing field is level. There's a lot of people that can they can accelerate to a position if they can build something. They can then wrap a business around that very quickly, because everybody else has laid the you know the paved the way for them. So I think what that means is there's about to be an innovation spike. Something is going to happen that someone's going to do something so remarkable that it, again, separates them from everybody else. And I can only hope that it's us that does that. But <laughs> I, I feel that something like that's coming. And it's more important than ever to have a strong brand because you know there are, there are companies out there that are exactly that. They're just a company. They're just a business. They're not a brand. And that's something that, I've really focused strongly on, and as a company, we do. You know, it's so important now that you treat your customers with excellence, and you know that we have customers that go to their competitor and they just come right back. 
and they're just like, oh, I can't believe I left. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, you know, you can, we focus so heavily on that. Our customer success team is incredible. You can always get a human on the phone. Well, unless it's the middle of the night. But, you know, uh, we use NPS score to track customer satisfaction at several points in the life cycle. And, you know, that's, that's uh, how likely are you to recommend this to someone else. And an OK score is 20. Apple is 80. And for anyone who's interacted with our customer success team, our score is 81. Wow. And it just blows my mind. So, and that goes back to why you're successful as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is, is you guys are still small enough where you can still have a very, you know, small business approach to the way you yeah. service your customers as well. Um, and, and it's funny too, because I empathize with this next point too, because you know, Unbounce and you know a lot of other companies as well are in a tricky spot in that you're marketing for marketers. You know, you're offering landing page tools with landing pages of your own. So, wh- what type of challenges does that present? Yeah, it's really meta. Um, <laughs> this is how I look at it. Essentially, we are marketing a marketing product to marketers using marketing content about how to do marketing better with other marketers. <laughs> That other market is. <laughs> I should buy a domain for that as well. <laughs> T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's probably a better idea. Uh, it's a nice challenge to have because to be perceived as the best, you have to become the best. If people trust and value us as marketing leaders, then they'll develop a greater sense of trust in our product by association, and it also helps satisfy my creative my craving to do epic shit. <laughs> to ensure that we're, we are actually positioned as the leaders in marketing content. So define epic shit. What, what, what kinds of stuff do you... <laughs> do you what, what do you get up for every day? Um, well, actually, I mean, to kind of back this up, I would say, you know, you said like going back in time, what would you tell yourself? Well, I have one guiding principle now, really. And it's something I call GAS, which stands for giving a shit. Um, that's, that's all I really care about because if you, if you care to that level, it rubs off on other people. I mean, my, my gas star is, is pretty strong. I can tell when people have gas, if you pardon the expression. (laughs) Um, but epic shit to me, uh, that's how we started the company. The first, you know, like I said, we started marketing. Um, or creating content, we started a blog, started writing day one. Actually, it was day eight, you know, way before we had a product. So, you know, I'm like, oh, we're going to launch in whenever. It turned out to be nine months, I think. We need an audience. So I suggested, oh, I should write an ebook uh, so we can start doing some lead gen. And our CTO, Carl, he didn't say it to me, he said it to Rick. He said, really? Is he going to waste two weeks? writing an ebook we should be building the website we should be doing this this and this and uh, rick told me and i am so competitive so that day or the next day i held a brainstorm two hours i had 14 questions which were going to be the chapters and did this two-hour brainstorm so i had all these stickies on the wall for each of these questions i rolled them up i went home i pulled an all-nighter came back the next day with an ebook 101 landing page optimization tips i just kind of slap it on the desk like the printed <laughs> version <laughs> so that's that was the beginning of of doing epic content um then then it really kind of transformed from there you know like i said i've written 300 blog posts and that was well that was up to like two years ago um i wrote for on the moz blog would they have the best marketing community in the world it's not quite as strong now as it was four years ago, five years ago. But I wrote, um, 
a really fun post. I like to be entertaining in my, in my writing. It was the 12 step landing page rehab program. And it did really well. Like you post on UMOS and if it's really good, it gets promoted to the main blog. And it, so it got promoted within like an hour. And I was, it was a little while after that, Rand reached out and he said, are you going to post again? And I said, yep, and it's going to be epic. <laughs> so that's kind of one of my uh, principles as well. Tell people what you're going to do because then you have to do it. You know, otherwise you, you look silly. Like I like that peer pressure. So I then did the Noob Guide to Online Marketing, which was essentially my story of how I became, it's like zero to hero, like how I became a marketer from day one when I wasn't one to six months in. So it was a six-month course, 15,000 words, a 15 million pixel infographic. And it, it takes courage to do that because it took me a couple of months, not full time, but it was a massive commitment. And then I posted that on their blog, you know, which is one of our core values. We didn't have it then, but being generous. So giving that content to them for their website is, you know, that's, that's giving away a lot. And it smashed every record they had. Um, and now it's been translated into like 12 languages. And it's, yeah, it, it just, it really set us on the road. It gave us that big exposure at the beginning. Yeah, I think the really important thing that, that you were doing was you were building the platform. And I think, much like Copyblogger did. Like Copyblogger was blogging before they had a product to sell. And then when it came time to sell the product, it was like, it was a lot easier. They had the trust yeah. already built and they had the, the equity already built with people. So it's funny how you say, like, we should be building a website. Uh, now, in, <laughs> in, in, in hindsight, it's like, no, but I was building the platform. Uh, you know, and you were building the equity. You know, both are important, but uh, it's funny how far... The, the respect that content gets nowadays, um, you know, even yeah. to, even compared to back then when it was Absolutely. like the website and landing pages and CTAs are so much more important, but uh, it's 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 become much more balanced, I guess, as as we've as we've moved along here. Um, yeah, and I mean, and and you know, that's when there were very few people doing content marketing back then. It didn't really exist. You know, there was Coffee Blogger, there was HubSpot, and there was us, and there were a few others, but there weren't many people doing it, and. Yeah, and, and, to, and to be clear, while I was doing that, I did build a website, and I did spend six <laughs> hours a day get building a Twitter following. So. <laughs> <laughs> you're, not, you're not still bitter about that, right? No, not at all. <laughs> no, I loved it. <laughs> uh, it was, you know, pulling 16-hour days to build something was just incredible. What about that is, so how, how do you feed that, get that dopamine rush nowadays? Because what you have is is pretty well-sustained. What gives you that same dopamine rush as a creator now oh a couple of things i mean back then we didn't have it well we had there was one we had a competitor that when we started um well, it was ion interactive but they were at like a higher priced not self-serve platform so we were friends with them early on they were you know we would we would uh recommend up if people needed hand-holding professional services they'd recommend down for self-serve but we had one other competitor called performable um, they're not around anymore. Actually, they, they, they pivoted to become an analytics company, then they got acquired by HubSpot. Mm -hmm. um, but since then, we didn't have any competitors. Now we do. So and that's, that's, that's what drives you. Yeah, that, that's a big part of it, certainly. Um, the other part is that now I've transformed everything I do, basically, you know, now that I'm public, a public speaker, and I've kind of reset everything, and it's all new and exciting again. And you're a guy also who proclaims to have seen more landing pages than anyone on the planet. So 
what can you conclude from that? What are people doing right? And what are people doing wrong? Yeah, there's a lot of wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Um, To your point, I've seen around 80,000 landing pages. And I know the number because I get our IT department to do like a a screenshot dump of our customers' pages. And sometimes they'll send me 3,000, sometimes 200, and the last time was 15,000. So I keep a running tally. And I tell you that when you sit, clicking with your finger going through landing page screenshots for hours and hours and hours it's painful you know you'll see the occasional spark of brilliance but for the most part you know i in a lot of my talks my slides for a while my my second slide was 98% of landing pages suck <laughs> you've never been one to mince words Ali. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm kind of direct i guess um, marketers need that yeah they do people need honesty because you know now that we are in the age of data-driven marketing the truth is coming out um and because in the past when i worked at like when, when i worked back at bodog there were times and i'm not gonna uh, crap on them but there were times where the entire marketing department, which was large, wasn't accountable. Nothing was tracked. And you know, now these things are. Analytics is getting stronger. We're doing testing, optimization. So marketers are becoming way more accountable than they ever used to be. So, so what does yeah. that mean for our landing pages? Um, well, I mean, when I come to a number like 98%, I, I base that on, you know, I click on thousands of ads. I look through all these pages and I score them I have a, a, a framework called Conversion Center Design, which is seven principles. And I use a couple of those, maybe three of them, for an immediate gut check on a page. Is the attention ratio good, which is the number of things you can do to the number of things you should be doing. You only should be doing one thing because you only have one campaign goal. But on, you know, if you send your traffic to your homepage, there might be 40 things to do. So that, that's, why, that's why I get so angry when people send traffic to their homepage because uh, a landing page does it better. So I look at that first, where are they sending the traffic? Then I look at the context. Your post-click experience, this landing experience, has to deliver on the promise you made prior to the click in your email, your ad, or your tweet, whatever it is. And marketers are disrespecting our clicks because they're not giving us delightful experiences. And that's my entire mission. You know, when I go out to speak, I'm never pitchy. I don't sell unbounce at all. I just want to help people make marketing better because, A, it would help. <laughs> when I'm looking at these pages, I'd have a nicer time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? 80,000 pages is a lot to look at when you're pissed <laughs> off, right? Yeah. And, and you kind of, you posted a, you, you uh, first of all, you're one of the, you're one of my personal MVPs on Medium. Like everything you put up there, uh, it's 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 a little more personal and a little more risque than anything you probably wrote on the Unbounce blog, but it's just gold. And and one of the things you wrote was the art of conversion in 264 words. And it's literally just that. It's just like somebody with ADD literally just took a pen and, and wrote down everything <laughs> that they thought about. And I, w- I want to read some of them here because I want you to to sort of, you know, explain this you know what you were thinking at the time mm-hmm. and 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 all of this supports what you were just saying and how you want marketers to have or you want consumers or people really to have a better time yeah. um so here's a, a few that i see persuade don't coerce drink red wine use differentiation as a filter make ordinary unordinary 
Go big or go small, it doesn't matter. Be humble. Use contrast. Use directional cues. Eat diamond shreddies. Don't shout. Eat your own dog food. Do what it takes to get the sale and do more. Authenticity rules. Best practices? Why the fuck are you practicing? Push people off fences. Fields are for farmers, not forms. Get a mirror for your vanity metrics. So that's just a few of them. Anyone else can go just Google the art of conversion, <laughs> Ollie Gardner. What, what, th- this seems like this is one of those posts that came to you in like a dream or something. So like, what does all of this mean? Like, wh- what was the, the genesis for that post and, and what is the art of conversion all about? Yeah. Um, it's, it's a typographic essay. I mean, I, I'm a, that's why it's written in caps. Um, I, I love typography. I love staccato style writing where it's punchy and alliteration. And I guess it's kind of a poem as well and a bit of a rant. Uh, you know, the, the part about drink red wine. One of my, <laughs> right or wrong, been right for me. Uh, one of my, you know, approaches, I guess, is write drunk, edit sober. You know, <laughs> I believe that was Ernest Hemingway, correct? Yeah, I didn't know that, so I kind of was, was saying that at the same, not the same time. That would be he, he's dead now, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, and you know, it's funny. Unbalanced in many ways, but part of it was born in our local bar in Vancouver. It was Rick on his laptop and me doing napkin sketches on a corner of the bar, like for many years. Um, but. Yeah, each kind of part in that was kind of a direct connection to how I think or live or um, it, it's, it's funny, like the way it ends, uh, I hate bullet points and presentations. I can't stand them. But right at the end, I wrote this after a school shooting in the US. So the closing line was kind of a call to no arms. So it says, use bullet points, not bullets. Mm-hmm. And and so all of them have a, you know, a kind of meaning. The diamond shreddies thing, like eat diamond shreddies, they convert better than regular ones. Diamond shreddies, that was my favorite ad of all time. I absolutely love it. It's just so clever. Turn it 45 degrees and you sell more. Uh, come on. <laughs> That's genius. That's madman shit. <laughs> it really is. Um, yeah. And, and that, that you have, like I said, you have some gold on there. Um, you had another post called fuck data and it was basically an internal monologue between with yourself and saying, I had this really great idea and you're saying, okay, let's test it. Well, I don't. And then basically the theme is, I know the numbers may not reflect it, but I know in my gut that this works. Do you think that one of the first rules of conversion rate optimization is your gut and your opinion does not matter? It's such an interesting question. Um, and yeah, and that's why I wrote it because, well, the background of why I wrote it was we did an explainer video for our homepage. It was a live action, so an, an actor. We paid like 12 grand for the video um, and a, a lot of our time went into it, you know, writing the script and then just everything that went around it. And we put it on the homepage expecting this big lift and it did nothing absolutely nothing it may as well have not existed and i was so angry <laughs> so that's what that fuck data is about is it's it's that yeah like you say inner dialogue of of uh well i like it i want to use it we put a lot of time and money into this well the data says it doesn't work and you know but it and it didn't just do nothing 
in some ways it was it performed slightly worse. So that's just, you know, it, it's one of those weird things. And that's the beauty of CRO is that you learn these things. You don't just make these uh, changes based on your gut because our gut told us that this couldn't possibly lose. But, and it's like best practices get railed on all the time right now. Mm-hmm. It's every blog post, every talk is like best practices suck, blah, blah, blah. But that's not true. They're essential, especially in CRO. Usability best practices have been established over 20 years of usability testing. CRO is infantile by comparison. So we need to establish best practices as a baseline for people to start somewhere. Like not everyone's an expert. They have to have somewhere to start. And then over time, these will evolve as well as they're proven and disproven. But they're a great place to start. Emphasis on start. That's it, right? There are someone for you to start. But instinct has to play a part. I mean, I'm not talking about hippos, like highest paid person's opinion, but experience matters. Sometimes the guy who owns the most money actually knows the most. Um, But that's just somewhere to lean for information. But data-driven marketing is so critical because when you try and fail, you try and you fail and you try and you fail, you develop an awareness of patterns of consumer behavior that you can use to turn it around into a win. Um, And it's a tough balancing act too because... Successful conversion rate optimization is really all about iterating based off data, based mm-hmm. off behavior. We all know that, but you know, like you just you know alluded to, your experience and your gut instinct does provide a starting point. Yeah. So uh, you know, for you, you know, for you personally, when you're putting together a campaign, uh, you know, when you used to run, you know, di- uh, be director of marketing, or even when you're putting together stuff for a speaking engagement, how mm-hmm. do you approach persuasion? at the very beginning of, of the campaign? Like, what's the start for you before you have anything to iterate off of? Yeah, and that's something I've learned over the years. You know, I used to do a lot of, I used, I used to do a lot of bad testing. Everybody does, I think, when you start. Um, and really, it's since I started speaking that I've really learned the hardcore principles of testing and how you really do it right. Um, so now it's, it's really all about research. There's no, you know, we used to just sit up at an, me and uh, Georgiana, we'd, we'd stay up late and we'd, we'd pick a whole bunch of headlines to test and we'd kind of gamble on it. And it was so much fun, but it wasn't the right way to go about it. But the nice thing is it really got us involved in becoming data-driven. But you have to do some kind of research, just asking some, some open-ended questions that you'll be so surprised by the results you get. Um, and you have to be careful. Uh, something I call the curse of the case study. Case studies, kind of like best practices, they should be used for inspiration only to help when you need an idea that could help in creating or speaking to a a test hypothesis. You should never blindly implement what you see because it's not the same target market, not the same product, not the same service, or maybe a different inbound traffic channel. So use that. You can leverage it to, if if you can, I'm writing an ebook right now called Attention Driven Design and the basis of this is that there are design principles that inform performance and persuasion and driving attention. And when you can understand what's created this impact from a design perspective, why is this one winning? Like, and you can start wrapping these principles around it. Principles help you come up with ideas as well, rather than just copying something. You need to have some foundational principle there that you can apply to your own situation. So that example that you just gave of you and Georgiana sort of writing, 
you know, five to ten headlines that, that mm-hmm. sounded great and going with whatever you thought might work and testing and being like, oh, we found one. What's the smart? I know you said research, but mm-hmm. I, I want you to unpack, uh, unpack that a little bit more. Like, what is what is the smarter way to do that? Is it like, is it going through and trying to see where your audience hangs out? Like, go to go to crowdsourcing sites like Quora and see what people are asking and steal some of the language. Like, what's the smarter way to test headlines and, and things like that? Yeah, that's definitely a great approach. Um, Joanna, we've talked about it all the time where you should go, like, go to anything in your your kind of line of business. Maybe it's even testimonials or comments on Amazon.com and learn how people are writing about it and just put that into your into your language. I actually saw a tweet on CRO Chat today. Carlos Del Rio, who actually used to work with us, he was saying, ask someone else to write your headline for you. And I thought that was just brilliant, you know? <laughs> like I don't know where it would go, but because we're so attached to, you know, what we do, ask a customer to write your headline for you because they're going to take the best part of why they became a customer when they write about you. I think that's just a phenomenal approach or at least something to try out. But it depends what you're testing. If you're testing um, your website, things are a bit different. You can do usability testing as well on your website because there are multiple pages. There's flow, there's all of this kind of stuff. It's a bit different to a landing page where there's no navigation. But as an example, on our templates page on the website, I put a little quality widget just to say, Simple question, what do you think of our templates? And I left it for a month, got 1,500 responses, and overwhelmingly there were three questions. How much are they? Can I use them in WordPress? And where do I download them? You can't do any of those things. It's, people were so confused. It, they're for using inside the product. So we put two diagrams at the, at the top showing context of use. So this is, instead of just like a screenshot you have to highlight how it will actually be used when, when someone's using it. What does it look like? What does it feel like? So we showed two things. One, choosing it from the template library inside the app and then inside the page builder. So the context of what's going on. And that had a massive in, impact, a 43% lift in new trial starts when people saw that page, which over the course, looking at lifetime value in, of a customer and all this kind of stuff, over the course of a year, the amount of acquisition that increased came comes in about a million dollars increase <laughs> it was uh phenomenal because we asked that open-ended question and we just learned things we had no idea about yeah it's so much more effective than just tossing around ideas that are in everyone's heads mm-hmm. that are sitting in your room it's like it's like the Moneyball approach that movie Moneyball, where where billy bean first came to the oakland a's as general manager he said all the guys, the older scouts, were sitting around the room comparing players saying, we should get this guy. He's got a good-looking swing. Or, <laughs> or we shouldn't get this guy because he's got an ugly girlfriend, and that means he lacks self-confidence, so he's never going to succeed. And he walked in like, what? Like, We have all these numbers, and you guys are saying he's got a good-looking swing? We should sign him? And it's almost, <laughs> like, it's almost like marketers are going through this now. We're in that Moneyball era where we're sort of – we're, we're, we're having to move away from this, oh, this has worked in the past, trust me, to, right. well, the data says it doesn't. 
Um, so it's interesting. It, it, it's interesting just by putting a survey up or, or looking on Amazon reviews or Quora, how you can get so much mm-hmm. more than just by getting, you know, even you know, all the, all the leadership team in your, in your company to sit around and toss around ideas. It really doesn't mean anything. So I, I, I love that approach and I love seeing when it works. Uh, yeah. And I, I, I regret partially what I just said about like throwing the big number out there and because that'll probably change over time. The, the truth is most tests fail. And if you can get a little win, that's amazing. Even losing is fine because if, as long as your hypothesis, that's why our tests were bad at the start. As long as you're running a test based on a solid hypothesis where you're doing it because you've observed this pain and you're going to change it to achieve this. If it fails, you learn something because you were wrong. It didn't do that. Whereas if you just change a headline or a button color based on whim, if it fails, you're like, oh, why did it fail? <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> sure, it's it's tricky business, and uh, and it's it's fun though. I, I think that's the thing about testing is it's fun, and especially when you're doing it right, and you can see the results from it. Is it's it's a lot of fun. Um, so as a creator, because you're a guy who still is, you know, obviously you're you're a public speaker. You speak all over the globe now. Uh, you still create content in in many forms, uh, the photography, obviously. So, where do you extract inspiration from? Like, what is Ollie Gardner reading, watching, listening to? Where do you extract your inspiration from that allows you to to create at such a high level? Right. Yeah. As far as writing is concerned, I think I'm inspired by the amount of insipid mediocrity that still exists on most blogs and in most books. <laughs> <laughs> I would have expected nothing less uh, from an answer. <laughs> I love telling stories. That's why Medium has been so great recently because, you know, like you say, I can't write that stuff on the Unbounced blog. I mean, I actually did write The Art of um, Conversion on the Unbounced blog way back in the day. It didn't perform well. Georgiana hated me for it. <laughs> She's like, it has no place on here. <laughs> so after I started writing on Medium, I thought, ah, that's the perfect place for this because it's a broader audience and I can just be myself. And so that's been, that's kind of been a, a reignited my passion for writing because it doesn't have to be so narrowly focused on marketing. Um, photographically, back in the day, it was Ansel Adams. I love his work. I love Yosemite. I actually got married there. I'm not married, married anymore, but it was, yeah, I was just in, in love with that place. And it's interesting because I'd, I'd love to teach photography at some point in the future in some way. Uh, like, and I have, I'm just going to throw these out there. I have two, my two best pieces of advice for photographers. Number one, the best tool you possess is your feet. If you're looking at a scene and you're, you know, maybe you're zooming in and out, don't do that yet. Walk around and change angles. Don't just, you know, when you walk up somewhere, like say you're standing between two other people, don't see that as being good enough. Jump over the wall, run down by the river, go wherever you need to go, um, climb a tree, whatever it is, get a different perspective. Because most people don't do that. And then if you're doing landscapes, take the greatest hit shot, the one that everyone takes, then try and do it better. But most importantly, you get it out of your system so that you can clear your mind and focus on creating something truly original. Because if you don't do it, you're always thinking about it. So once you can let that go, you can kind of free your creativity. And a lot of the, those lessons can be transposed to any sort of, you know, to writing, to painting, to, mm. you know, entrepreneurial uh, ventures. That, that could really be transposed to anything. And um, 
And I like how you, you know, you said you really appreciate the narrative approach on Medium. And you're somebody who, like I said earlier, does, does very well on there. And I think your, your best posts are my favorite one that you posted on Medium. And we talked about this when we caught up uh, at Inbound last September. Was your article, It's Okay to Puke. And it was about your transition, you know, as, as uh, somebody who was more, you know, product focused, you know, you were working, uh, you know, at Unbounce, you were creative director, you were director of marketing over the years. Um, and you took a much more leadership role and started public speaking, going around conferences all around the world. And for you, it wasn't easy. And you put together this post, it's okay to puke about sort of your, your trials waking up every morning the day of a presentation at a big conference and just feeling sick because you you just cared so much. You didn't want to let people down. You didn't want to seem like you didn't know what you were talking about. You didn't want to not have enough data to back up uh, you know, the subject matter that you were presenting. Um, and it was such a narrative piece. It was so specific. It was it was almost like a magazine article and it was so well written. Um, you know, that level of candor is not something you see very often, even on medium. So describe you know, for our listeners, you know, that whole, that whole reason you wrote that article, was it almost like, was it a way to just almost self-medicate? Be like, if I could just, <laughs> if I could just get this out, maybe I'll have an easier time with this. Uh, you know, how hard was that transition, at number one for you? And what sort of spurred you to be like, I'm going to document this? Yeah, it's the hardest thing I've ever done, I think. Um, People ask me for years, four years, like, come and speak, come and speak. I'm like, nope, I can't do it. I couldn't even do webinars. I was just so shit scared of being called a fraud or, or just, just not being good at it. Um, you know, and then eventually, again, Jojana, she just battered me. <laughs> like, you've got to, like, uh, HeroConf in, uh, it's coming up in Portland. It was in Austin last year. That was my first gig almost a year to the day. And she's like, it's a panel. Like their CEO asked me to speak. And she's like, it's a panel. Come on, it's critiquing landing pages. That's what you do. Um, and the deadline was five o'clock on this Friday to get the pitch in. And I'm, I'm watching the clock. Everyone else has forgotten. It gets to five o'clock. And I'm like, yes. I don't, I don't think I wrote about this part. I don't have to do this. Um, but stupidly, and this is a trait in my life where I've got away with it. But then I shoot myself in the foot. I don't know why. I went over and I went, oh, missed the deadline. It's 5.05. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, no way. Go and do it anyway. Um, so I did. And, you know, so I, I, I went. And yeah, it, it was just, it was so scary. Um, but we were going to do this panel critique. And I didn't think we could do that without some context like tell people some principles about how we're going to critique your pages so i said to the other two guys in the panel hey uh maybe i should do like a little intro you know why i was offering myself up for <laughs> i guess i figured if i'm going there just go full bore yeah and they're like sure <laughs> that's great so i did like a seven uh like a seven to ten minute intro um and i obsessed over it whenever i do something new i i have to be the best at it and my and, and yeah, so like it was only ten minutes max, and then I won an award for best presentation out of sixty-five speakers on my first go. So 
which was amazing, but also, damn it, I have to do this now. <laughs> uh, yeah, but that, you know, in the like you say, in the mornings, every time I wake up, I I would I'm an insomniac, but I'd get even less sleep because I'm terrified of my alarm not going off and missing it. And you know, I'd wake up and I, I you know, a couple of times I'd throw up in my mouth and it just and I just tell myself like, what? Why are you doing this? Life doesn't have to be this difficult. <laughs> you know, you could be just getting up, writing a blog post, and you know, whatever. But uh, it's been incredible, though. The way I am as a person compared to a year ago is night and day. It's has it been rewarding? Do, do you enjoy, do you find that you're able to enjoy it more now, or do you still have that that early morning, you know, jitters? Yeah, the last gig it was actually in Austin again, Conversion XL, Papalias conference um, about a month ago. It was the first time I got on stage and I wasn't nervous. But uh, I love it, even the, even the first time. Because I always knew I'd be good at it. I was just too scared to do it. Um, even the very first time, 60 seconds into it, I absolutely loved it. You know, I, I just, I like entertaining people. I like it when people laugh. And I design my presentations very, very carefully. I mean, when I started, like I said, I obsessed over it. There were three, three things I did, four things I did, actually. I read How to Deliver a TED Talk by Jeremy Donovan, which is just amazing. Um, then I watched a TED Talk on my commute to work every day. In Vancouver, was, my commute was exactly 18 minutes, which is the length of a TED Talk. So I do that every morning for a month. And when, by the time I got to work, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to change my fucking world. <laughs> um, That's a good way to come into work every day. <laughs> it was. And then I watched one about how your hand position changes how people perceive you. And then I'd spend, I'd spend days designing a presentation. We have a giant whiteboard, like the whole, like a painted wall. And I designed the flow. And as part of that, you know, it's a Nancy Duarte kind of approach where you tell a story between what is, like basically why the world sucks and what could be. And you, you take people from there to there using your way of fixing the world, basically. Then you drop down, you go back up. But then I'd infuse that with, and I put like, well, I need an aha moment here. So I designed that in there. I need a laugh here. You know, I put smiley faces on the whiteboard at, at different points. So then I can stand back and go, huh. That 10-minute part there is going to be really boring. So <laughs> I need an example there. I need something there to, to lift it up because I want to take people on this, this journey. If I'm not entertaining, inspiring, and educating, I'm not doing my job right. I want to do all those three things. Yeah, and that, that's the sign of a great speaker. And, then, and you know, I've had the pleasure of seeing you, uh, videos of you, and it's, it's, it's always entertaining. And, and I think you're, you're just one of those guys that was meant to speak, whether you like it or not, <laughs> you know? Um, and hey, congratulations, because you made it through today without puking, right? Because you, said you couldn't even do webinars. So, um, Ali, man, this, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for, for coming on here today and sharing your stories and, and, and uh, being candid about everything. Um, you're a super passionate guy. You, you're, you're extremely direct, which I think uh, we as marketers need. Um, you know, all you have to do is watch one page fights with Ali and, and, and his unbounce, uh, and conversion XL friends. And, um, you know, you, you, 
just go in knowing that you're, you're if you submit your landing page, it's all done out of love, but you're going to get ripped apart, and there's no there's no mincing words. So people people appreciate that, man. So I really appreciate you coming on, Ali. Uh, you guys are are doing great things, and um, yeah, thanks so much for coming and hanging out with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. It was that was a lot of fun. And I'll be seeing you soon. I'll be seeing you in Boston at the uh, conversion road trip. And uh, so we'll have to we'll have to share a drink together. Maybe come up with some uh, you know come up with some catchphrases, and uh, we can name the next <laughs> the next big thing. Definitely. <laughs> All right, Ali. Thanks a lot. And for everyone else listening, thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to like it, uh, rate it. Uh, comment, uh, give us a review, um, share it with your friends, do all those cool things. Um, just don't say anything bad, you know? No, just kidding. You can say that if you'd like. Um, but thank you so much for stopping by, and we will see you on the next episode. Bye bye.